2: So my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent, and I'm here to talk to Steve Toombs and Victoria Canning about their new book, which is called From Social Harms to Zemiology." Would you like to introduce yourselves to it, both to us and tell us about, a bit about yourselves? Yeah, so, I can go yeah. first.
0: Oh,
1: you go, talking. Vicky. Yeah, you go.
0: Um, I'm Vicky Canning. I work on the rights of people seeking asylum, um, women's rights and uh, addressing trajectories of violence and sexual violence and torture in the lives of, of refugees. So, thinking about support. I'm a, a senior lecturer at the University of Bristol and I work with State Watch and the European Group for the
1: Study of Deviance and Social Control and uh, Border Criminologies. And, Steve, tell us about you. Yeah, okay. Um, Steve Toombs, I work at the Open University in criminology um, for many, many years. Prior to that, I worked at Liverpool John Walls University, old Liverpool Poly, met met Vicky there, Victoria there. Um, And we've kind of worked together on and off for, I don't know, that's part of 10, 15 years, Vicky, maybe? Uh, A long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Long enough. Um, Yeah, long enough. Um, Yes. Uh, And and so my, my kind of work has been around crimes by companies and also state so corporate crime also to some extent state crime and the role of the state in in colluding with the corporation to produce crime and harm um so I've kind of written around that for most of my career and also you know like like Vicky referred to some of her kind of non-non-academic work so to speak I mean I've also kind of worked with campaign organizations around corporate and state harm so I'm on the board of inquest charity inquest which uh, supports those approved by deaths in custody or at the hands of the state uh, and I work with the, I've worked for years with the hazards movement which which is a kind of works with not part of the trade union movement but works with workers and trade unions uh, in struggle for safe and healthy workplaces so so that yeah that's kind of me really.
0: Okay so why this book and why now? Well for a number of reasons um, it, the, the actual idea for the book came about about four or five years ago Steve but I had been on about it to Patty yep. and Patty Hilliard, um, who you know, was fundamental in coin and semiology. Um, Patty and Thief for a long time. At the time I was teaching students and trying to teach social harm, and it was really difficult, where there was nothing really kind of like aimed towards students, but also, you know, that that taught that supported people to see stuff in a different way beyond, oh, semiology is an umbrella. Subject of criminology, which is has been put into to, to criminological literatures for long periods of time, and I think it. I was finding students really confused about it, and I was thinking actually sometimes I'm confused about it whenever I read this stuff. Um, so we wanted, we talked about it for some years, and and with Paddy, um, but Paddy wasn't teaching at the time; he was researching for his Star stalker book, and Steve was but it wasn't sort of a priority so then eventually it got to the stage where we thought well if we don't work toward a semiology in the sense that it was meant which steve and paddy and i have been talking about for about the last sort of debating and hashing bits out the last decade If we don't do it now semiology is going to be lost to an umbrella to criminology and it also seemed a time whenever more disciplines anthropology and medical studies were starting to you know, open up to social harm in the sense that, that Steve and Paddy and others had been working on in the 1990s and 2000s. So it seemed a, a good time to get it off the ground. So have you got anything to add to that, Steve?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that's 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 all... I mean, I agree with that. I'd say a couple more things. I think, um, I think the book was a bit of a kind of stock take in terms of so, social harm. In and around criminology and semiology have been, been kicking around for uh, just over 20 years, since the late 90s, as Vicky said. So it was kind of, uh, it was kind of just taking stock of, of where, where that kind of debate and the arguments around social harm and semiology had got to in those 20 years. Um, so part of the book just sort of reviews existing work, really, and I mean, in that sense, is it's a kind of meant to be an accessible teaching text. Uh, but it also it tries to push, then, the second thing it does is tries to push the debate on a bit and just kind of says, okay, look. Lots of people talk around social harm, which is good, right? Um, and some people talk about semiology, which is good. But maybe we just need a bit more kind of conceptual uh, uh, clarity in, uh, around these terms. And so we try to do, we just try to kind of not actually not answer, not, not provide answers, but actually kind of just hone some of the questions and provide some possible responses to, to you know, what is the concept of social harm? And what does zemiology mean as a discipline or as a way of looking at the world? So we kind of take stock of where we are and then just try and move some of these debates forward a bit. I think. Um, and and in the kind of journey the book takes, it sort it it might have been called, but it would have been too clumsy as Vicky, as Vicky wrote in one of the drafts. It might have been called from criminology to social harm to Zemiology, because it is kind of about that journey, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's in a sense the book kind of ends by saying okay now we've done the criminology but let's leave that bit behind which is part of the reason why it isn't in the title let's now properly do some social harm and some zemiology yeah
2: yeah yeah it's, it's kind of like coming out from underneath the shadow of criminology which it needs to do yeah but obviously we're all very familiar with zemiology but people listening probably aren't because it doesn't get talked about that much So could you tell us what
1: zemiology is yeah, yeah it's it's a it's a, a way of understanding harmful relationships harmful processes harmful institutions harmful structures and and how they deny individuals or, or people's needs how they de- how they deny material needs health needs income needs employment needs the ability to flourish as a human being the, the ability to genuinely be a kind of recognized human being in the world and to, to engage with the world or to, with others on a kind of on a on an equal footing on an equal basis um, and and it, recognize, it tries to recognise that there are a whole series of, of phenomena in the world, as I said, processes, institutions, other people, organisations, uh, which, which prevent kind of human beings from flourishing and which cause harm. So, the concept is social harm. That's the concept which is th- that we're trying to capture in its various forms, and the way of looking at the world which, which centres so upon the concept of social harm is zemiology. So. For some people, it may be a discipline. For other people, it may be a kind of just, as I say, a way of looking at the world or perspective. But it's focused upon a concept of, of social harm. Um, and certainly social harm rather than, which is where we kind of began many years ago, rather than crime, which is, a you know, crime points to certain kinds of harms that the state determines are the most serious harms, which therefore should be criminalised. And we're kind of saying, look, there are a whole range of other things which are much more harmful to people, uh, which aren't defined through criminal law and which we should be focusing upon. And not just focusing upon, but, but identifying, mapping, identifying, measuring with the aim of preventing and mitigating these harms and thinking of a society in which these harms are not allowed to prevent individuals from being human beings, right?
0: Mm. Yeah, just to, to add to that, it's like what we've been trying to do, especially as the second part of the book goes on, is think about what is it that we can research what is it that actually affects us all in the everyday while we see all these like many kinds of international or local or you know national phenomena blow up and discussed about in the media etc what actually is what is it that grinds people down in the everyday what affects people in the everyday what affects people wanting to like realize what they want to do or be through autonomy or um you know you know as as Steve said sort of the the sort of structures around you that might otherwise prevent that and we're quite clear in the book and we're certainly clear in the last, last chapter that the objective of doing that is to mitigate harms and to actively intervene in harmful practices harmful structures harmful institutions so as we say toward the end you know for us anyway people can of course disagree with us but for us the, time, like the kind of falsehoods of what would be called, um, you know, what, what would you call it, like value-free research. You know, this kind of idea that recent, some, some research in the world can ever be value-free isn't true, because who funds research? Who decides what the research questions are? All of these are embedded in power in, so- in, power, power, in society. Um, and those, that power is disproportionately held by disproportionately few people. So we've kind of said, you know, enough, enough of of continuing on these mythologies, and enough of sitting on the fence, especially, you know, as we can see the exacerbations and compounding of harms in people's lives. For us, it the, the time of fence sitting is is over, um, and for us, we would we'd like to see semiology, or certainly in the semiology as we practice it or think about it, would be. Moving towards you know structural changes and and harm interve- interventions in harm.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's a really important discussion to have that zemiology needs to be, you know, a separate discipline to criminology because actually criminology doesn't look at the damage that it does itself. It doesn't, you know, it it's it's so uh, harmful the way that it sort of say criminology as a discipline situates, you know, harm being done outside of itself. When you know some of the greatest harms done to marginalized community are by the criminal justice system, you know, let's not start talking about you know the war on drugs and stuff like that, but those those really sort of like those harmful practices when it comes under the umbrella of, of criminology, that it, it's almost like an attempt to um, to, to absorb and silence zemiology as, as a study, you know, but also as well um, you know my understanding of the word zemiology is that the zie is harm and it's a study of harm as well, isn't it which is always really conspicuous by its absence in criminology debates mm. so um, yeah. tell us about the the evolution from social harms to, to
0: zemiology it's about taking trajectories of harm and multifarious forms and dimensions of harm. So not just to be like, it's not like just a culmination of harms because you don't always experience, as Steve just said, everything at once. It's trying to like open up different ways in which those harms are experienced at different times across trajectories, um, perhaps like personal continuums. Um, But also um, to think about, you know well at which point could there have been interventions to support and what are the reasons behind those lack of interventions and then we can pull back to other things you know at which stage was there not support which didn't end up in care well we also know that so many things if you know, like sure starts um counselling all this stuff has been annihilated um financially and economically in the aftermath of um various cuts austerity austerity in inverted commas um, you know basically violence you know, violent economics, um, and and you know, see those as interconnected and around us all the time. So it's really about trying to unearth what's unseen and what what affects us again on in different ways. So Steve has used that example. You can use forms of employment examples, you know, what has eroded employment laws, how does that you know and, and other practices, forms of bureaucratization or managerialism. You know, the, the guy on, who's, who's cycling around on uh, various delivery things on bikes, the, the different kinds of impacts of, of precarity and all this stuff. It's about also trying to map from the individual out to the structural and institutional. Um, as we say in the book, you know, from the macro, from the sort of the big, the, the national or international and all the different things that play there to the mezzo. So the kind of middle institutional areas. The things that we might recognize as like say the university or um the the employer or whatever down to the meso down to looking at how that impacts on individuals um at particular points in time or um, which is why i often do oral histories with women seeking asylum for example over periods of time to understand more in depth how we map these all out um and how these are all interconnected with with actually often political decisions so Things are often represented as, oh, this is, as Steve said, you know, this accident that happened in work um, or, or this happened in work. It's also political decisions about how much people get, how the criminal justice process goes, what's the unlikelihood of feeling like you've got a sense of justice at the end of it. All of these things map out to decisions that are made in parliaments or at board levels or, you know, sitting with CEOs in, in corporations, etc., about pulling all those things together in accessible ways that help us to understand, like, what's happening around us and what's happening in our own lives as well, hmm. depending on what those lives are. But also the, the multi-generational
2: effects, you know, like, because even semiology is limited by the fact that it tends to look at what's going on, you know, now. I mean, if you think about Lindsay, Lindsay's children, by virtue of the fact that they're in care, are exposed to so many dangers. I mean, you know, we all know what this statistics are of people in prison if you're in prison and you're under 24 50 percent of being in care yeah so what what's being passed on you know multi-generationally as well So we've got to look you know sort of going down as well as across you know my yeah. own yeah my own research Dicta- dictates that you know it's like you know we've interviewed street women and I've interviewed a whole family you know a mother and a daughter and and a granddaughter who are all doing the same stuff because they're trapped in this cycle of 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 marginalization if you criminalize a, if you criminalize a mother you marginalize
0: a child yeah and I would say though that I actually think semiology isn't restricted by that I think a lot of semiology does that where other things so I think semiology does draw from um, or can draw from like interse- or intergenerational discussions in, in sociology, for example. And certainly when I like similar to you, Rachel, when I when I'm thinking about torture or survivors of persecution or other forms of conflict related violence, it often goes back generations, especially where conflicts have been long running or there's new wars. Likewise, as you say, if, if somebody is tortured, particularly the silence around this, What's the effect on their children? What, what does the effect then of policies, like say integration policies on children who are dealing with the secondary trauma from their parents uh, or the survivor of torture, etc., etc.? So I actually think that semiology has the potential and capacity and, and does do in the work that we've done, unpack what those things in ways that uh, are sometimes uh, overlooked, especially if we have the narrow lens of the idea of a victim. If we start to think about multidimensional harms, how do we see harms in the society around the people that we're talking to or speaking with? Yes,
2: yeah, I think as well, it really sort of brings into, into, into the conversation as well, the idea of like sort of ultra-realism that I understand kind of really goes hand in hand with semiology. We can't keep going back to the same old sort of the- theoretical as the same old theorists. We need new... Um, uh, we need new, um, what's that word? We need new sort of like ethnographies from people within the communities that we're studying, from, that we're studying rather than, you know, people from the outside looking in and making assumptions about, you know, sort of the harms, harmful impacts on, on different
0: communities. I, I agree to a degree. Um, what are going to I mean, I think to, to a degree, I think ultra realism just does still draw a lot and, and sometimes has the potential to conflate crime and harm in ways that I think also semiology moves away from. But sure, the discussion on ethnography is definitely um, is situated in that. Yeah,
1: I think I'd also go back to a point that that, that Vicky alludes to earlier on. I mean, I think I think um, that semiology uh, has to partly be about a kind of for one, it's not a phrase I particularly like, but it, it conveys what I want to convey, I think it's kind of a bottom-up knowledge really it's not you know it has to it has to be knowledge based upon uh people's lived experience mm. uh, um and you know some somebody when we went years ago we were talking about social harm and, and um uh one of the criticisms of of the idea of social harm which has some merit right but <laughs> but was you know well you need to you know, how can you define what's harmful what's harmful? varies by, by different groups of people or different individuals. And that's right, right? And we need to find a way of taking that seriously. We need to find a way of taking people's own experiences seriously. And, and that's why it's important to go back to the point Vicky made earlier, uh, earlier on, uh, for us to join up our kind of academic work and our non-academic work, and to yeah. say, you know, look, we can't, we can't. This isn't about value freedom. It's not about neutral forms of knowledge. We can be rigorous about how we generate knowledge. Of course, we have to do that, right, and transparent and accountable. Um, but we have to do it based upon our engagement with 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 people and their experiences, right? We, you know, we we can't sit we can't sit detached, right? I mean, that, that, that was, the, the time for that is gone. You know, yeah, I think. Yeah
0: just sorry to add on that, Steve, though, I think it's still really important to say, I mean, maybe it's because of my focus on on structural violence, um, but I I think it is also important to weave these in with what's actually happening on the bigger picture. I do think there are limitations in, um, I mean, I do case study research and and oral histories and, and ethnography and activist ethnography, et cetera, but I think these do have to be connected to the wider Um, socio-political environments otherwise we end up sometimes with um, almost tunnel vision views of of what's happening without thinking right well who's responsible and who's accountable and it is really important to kind of because I think it can be what ends up happening there is comparisons between this group and that group and what you know so it becomes more of a race to the bottom um, than it does to a race to the top (laughs) Um, Or, you know, like a kind of, you know, how do we how do we change this that's up here? So if you're being kind of pushed on by these sorts of structures, how do we change what's up here rather than comparing what's down here? Um, And this does happen, for example, with, you know, I've worked for 10 or 15 years with people seeking asylum. And then it can become, you know, immigration detention is why am I in immigration detention? I'm not a criminal. So that's a separation from the criminal and the prison When actually, when we look again, who is it that's harmed by both of these things and who by? Well, we still have that division in who has power, um, who is targeted by whether it's border controls or criminal justice controls. Um, And I think it's really important to, to bring these all together so that it doesn't end up separating out the kinds of impacts of structural violence which harm people in the everyday. And that those can actually be built together to challenge what happens at the top. Rather than compare what happens at the ground level, yes, yeah, yeah. Like you've got to send a message straight back up again,
2: and it's yeah. it's funny that you should say that because as I'm thinking as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the, the women that I've interviewed and the, the discussions around methadone. Yeah, so they give them methadone to sort of like so that they don't use heroin and it just doesn't work anyway because they can use heroin and drink and all sorts of other things on methadone. But the methadone is really hard to come off and it makes them lose their teeth as well a lot of times. So there's all these social harms that have done to women that have already experienced a lot of, you know, trauma in this guise of helping. Mm. You know, so the, the social, harm, social harms are really insidious. And I sort of, like, I wondered if you could give like, and the book gives some really good examples of social harms that people might not necessarily be aware of. So I wonder if you could give a, you know, one or two examples of, of the social harms that the book discusses that people may not be aware of. Oh, I forget what we ever
1: wrote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this was a very leading
1: question.
0: No, I was um, thinking about the winter deaths, really. You were talking about the winter deaths. Oh, yeah. Okay. So fuel related. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fuel related poverty. I mean, that's such an, an important example. Um, that a lot of this kind of drew from Steve and Patty's analyses of sort of richer. Or,
1: well, Steve, do you want to outline that? And then I'll, I can pick an example from, from... Yeah, I mean, it's in a sense. So the, the, uh, the UK government, as other governments, uh, maintain a, a, an annual toll of something they elegantly call excess winter deaths. And what excess winter deaths are um, is actually in the UK, thirty to 40,000, mostly older people, almost all over 85, uh, deaths which are, to, again, to use the elegant governmental phrase, brought forward. Uh, during the the, the three winter months, December to March, right? And basically what's happening is older people are dying because they can't afford to keep their homes uh, warm enough, right? Um, Either they, you know, their homes are poorly insulated, poorly built, uh, poorly maintained, and or they cannot afford enough heating, right? Um, Or or in some cases, enough clothing. Now, there are, in the kind of league tables of excess winter deaths, the UK fares very badly, Um, and some countries, which you might think fare should fare badly, like Finland and Sweden, which are very cold countries, do very well in protecting their older people. So what this says is, that, you know, just that essentially the UK government is just writing off thirty to forty thousand people every year. It doesn't make any headlines. No one's campaigning about it. No one's marching up and down a high street or writing, uh, asking questions in Parliament or writing letters to their MP or to the Guardian or whatever it is. Um, it just, it just, it's a normal, mundane set of routine deaths, but these deaths are avoidable social harm. I mean, the kind of most, the kind of worst manifestation of social harm, the taking of someone's life. And it's mm. just, it's not inevitable, it's avoidable. And it's, and it's easy to point to it being avoidable by the fact that it doesn't happen in some of our other cold countries with which we might compare ourselves. Mm. So these are just below the radar, and these are the kind of things which, you know, Ending someone's life prematurely is a, pretty, is a pretty severe form of social harm. And we think that this deserves some kind of uh, focus and indeed not just focus, but also activity.
0: There's two examples as well. So picking up on that with older people, if you remember at the time we were talking about it, whenever the pandemic was like starting to unfold in the UK, this discourse kept coming through news of like, oh, people over 60. And then it became, oh, people over, most people who are dying are, people over 60 then it became people over 70 and it was almost like well you know people over 70 are going to die eventually anyway with no kind of recognition that many people live into their 80s and 90s for a start but then of course and we were like well you what are people the care home example is we we were talking about it at the time and it was like well what's happening with care homes um that is because, is, I mean, I've worked in care homes actually uh, while I was at university and, and uh, after. And it's like, well, if you're in a care home and managing a care home, that's not an inevitability because in a way that's quite an isolated area, yeah? And of course then what we, I mean, you, you may get visitors, like family visitors, but it's not like it's, it's like a schoolyard or anything like that, right? So we were like, so what's happening with this communicable virus is killing people who, you know, and of course, then we start to see, oh, um, people who've been outsourced are going from one care home to the other care home. So the virus is moving through care homes from individuals who are on dreadful, and I'm, I say this as somebody work, who's worked in care homes, dreadful um, pay, uh, precarious conditions. Increasingly things like, oh, you've got to be, you're gonna be in this care home. You know, you've got 10 minutes per person living there, etc. So again, we map that back. What happens in care homes? Well, actually, carers who were all, who are often on ten to twelve-hour day shifts, etc., are having to be pushed through different care homes, and then that's moving through. Unbelievably, the you know the government's first response was, even though there wasn't PPE provided, etc., as we all now know, was like, oh, these people haven't been you know maintaining their own personal hygiene, so the first thing is individualise straight back to these people who are on crap contracts and, you know, working under very difficult positions, also emotionally laborious with people who are then dying around them at horrendous. Um, and the first thing was individualize, deflect, this is on the carers. And actually when we look at it from a social harm perspective, we can see that goes back to the sort of neoliberalization and outsourcing and privatization of care, this this is all interconnected when we look at the individual to the structural, and then the harms of someone on their own, separated from their families, the emotional harms, the psychological harms, the long term, like Steve, as you talk about in relation to, you know, uh, Grenfell, guilt, the feeling of guilt of not being there for your loved one whenever they passed away, all of this is left to families to pick up. And you know, that's, that's kind of one example of how you draw those together. Another is, of course, for me, deaths at borders, as if it's just like inevitable, right? Oh, 161 people died on a boat. Oh, oh really? Because were they on a cruise? Were they, uh, was this a tourist boat? No, because we'd have heard about it if it was a tourist boat. What is it that stopped people being saved? Well, it's the mechanisms by which, um, you know, the sea is patrolled, the outsourcing of the sea patrolled, the back and forth between states to say, We are not taking this boat it's your responsibility no it's in the Turkish waters no it's in Libyan waters no it's in Maltese waters all of these things all come back to decisions and what that draws us to thinking is well it's represented repeatedly as inevitable it's directly related to bordering because otherwise you wouldn't if there were safe passages you wouldn't be on the boat a precarious boat in the first place but also what we want to do to bring on a human level which Uh, A colleague of mine, Monish Bhatti, and I have just recently done with another book called Stealing Time, is think about, you know, what is lost in terms of human life? When you start to add add up, if somebody dies in the Mediterranean at two years of age and the demographic from where they're from lives to 75 on average or 68 on average, how many years is that that's lost? And how do we accumulate this into the now, you know, Heading likely toward tens of thousands since 1991 um, who've died in the Mediterranean, as an example. Well, all inevitable, and all this is the inevitable loss of human lives, human hours, human birthdays, celebrations, you know, partnerships, friendships. Mm-hmm. It's, and it needs to be brought back to that, um, that level because that's actually what's being taken from people through these decisions and these structural and institutionally enforced environments.
2: Yeah, and it's also, as well, it's a really good example of um, how much harm is actually done by the criminal justice system, because the, the story of humankind is a story of migration, yeah? If we hadn't been able to migrate out of the way of the the, the, uh, the sort of ice flows, none of us would be here now, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, sort of migration historically, yeah, it has been quite beneficial for, for some people, you know? And so that stop, you know, that, that sort of like that intervention of the, the sort of criminal justice system around an activity that's been normalized for thousands of years gives gives an insight into the types of harms that are done by criminal justice system and why zemiology is so important.
0: And but what you're pointing on actually goes even further than that, which is a lot of these things are not related to criminal justice. No. They mirror, they've drawn from, and this is the problem when criminology subsumes harm is that it draws from actually a lot of the things that cause these harms are uh, top-level political decision-making unrelated to criminal justice, um, the outsourcing and privatisation, profiteering from borders through privatisation, which uses and mirrors criminal justice through that, and through social policies, which are agreed by people who develop social policies, which mirror criminal justice systems. So exactly what you're saying in terms of the harms of criminal justice, that has become so much more dispersed. I think, I mean, I always think of Stan Cohen's ideas of, you know, net widening. Criminal justice is this kind of one thing, that it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and then everything else becomes subsumed into it. And actually, it's not inherently related to criminal justice, because very few people, um, comparatively, unless it's through illegalized immigration, but Few, few people comparatively are harmed if they're seeking exa- asylum, for example. Are harmed by criminal justice. They're harmed by the policies and processes which mirror the kinds of controls that are built on criminal justice. Um, you know, epistemologies and objectives. So I think yours, what you've said there, is actually really relevant to why this is the perfect time. You know, back to the first question: Why now? Well, exactly what you've just said.
1: So, which works well. Yeah, I'd add one more thing to that, um, which, which is that the, the the very and it's apparent as you speak in both of you the very idea of criminal justice criminal justice is harmful in itself, right? Um, I mean, you know, we, we we've all we've all worked with people who might be labelled as victims at various points in our in their in, in lives, um, and and often those victims are led to believe that criminal justice will deliver something for them. And, of course, it, it almost never does. I mean, one of, the, one of the most difficult questions I've ever been asked was um, uh, in West London a couple of years ago, speaking to a... a, a, a or speaking a, in a meeting with a, a group of people affected by uh, the fire at Grenfell. Um, and they said, what does justice look like for us? and And they were talking about the possible prosecutions of people in the council, the council itself, com- contract companies, who refurbish the, the tower. And, you know, that's impossible to answer in the con- in the context of thinking about criminal justice and the criminal justice system because it won't deliver anything that looks like justice or, or that make their lives any measurably better. Um, I mean, there are things that could do that, but they are nothing to do with criminal justice. But So the very idea that criminal justice systems deliver justice is in itself harmful and perpetuates harm i think
0: mm. yeah just to say that as well steve one of the things that interesting when you say like you know we've met with people who are victims throughout their lives one of the things that we've mentioned in the book is we have also been in inverted commas victims of crime we've experienced various stuff and we've been one of the critiques is like we're completely separate from this that and the other it's this which is nonsense <laughs> um, apart from anything else but it's not about our individual experiences of victimisation or our experiences of criminal justice, it's about thinking, well, who is it that's disproportionately affected? What happens through criminal justice systems? You know, the anxieties that are induced for, you know, waiting for three years for somebody to be brought to justice and what can justice ever be if you've lost someone or you've been subjected, for example, to sexual violence? What can justice ever look like whenever that is something that is, you know, exists to degrade and harm internally, and psychologically, and emotionally, you know, to break apart people's human spirits? What can what can resolve that? And for us, it's about looking to a trajectory. If we look back 50 years and see, you know, how many prisons there were, and how reforms and stuff have happened, or how criminal justice has worked, um, and I loathe going back to be discussing criminal justice in this sense, but um, what do we want in 50 years? Do we want to continue on this expansive brick and say, well, you know, If you've got a patch of grass over here, that's going to be slightly nicer. Or do we want to take the kind of perspectives of, for example, a colleague of ours who um, died this week, Thomas Matheson, who says, you know, we can look back and see how reform has helped individuals in some senses. But are we looking right now at a better system? Are we looking at less harm? Are we looking at less violence or crime? No, we're not. And we've got that, you know, thankfully from other critical colleagues who look back in that sense you've got the potential to think, what do we want in 50 years? Do we want a better criminal justice system or do we want fewer women to be raped or, you know, actually no women to be raped? Do we want um, nobody being killed by partners or in, you know, stab, stabbings or whatever else? Surely moving toward those ways seems to be a more uh, feasible alternative for, of thinking so that we don't experience these in the first place. Certainly anything I've been subjected to, which is either harmful, violent, or criminal, and I've been subjected to all of these. um, I would much rather have not been subjected to them in the first place. (laughs) And that's the kind of society that I think semiology should be working towards, that we focus on. Let's let's make sure that these these things, and and also to support people to be reflective of things. I think Julia Downes does this very well through her work. you know, how to support people to reflect on what is actually harmful for other people as well.
1: Mm. In our own actions. Uh, I mentioned earlier on working with the hazards movement. Um, and one of the kind of uh, kind of cornerstones of that movement is that so there is law around around safety standards at work. right? And there, you know, there is a factory inspector and a health and safety executive, which is supposed to enforce that law. But one of the things that the hazards movement knows and, and acts upon is that law isn't going to keep workers safe. Workers keep workers safe, right? Um, the law is re- pretty much uh, in the in, relevance in making work safer and healthier for workers. And, and I think, you know, the law is pretty much irrelevant to us, us having a kind of more progressive, socially just world. I mean, so in a sense, that's the kind of it's not original for us it's, well, saying that isn't original, but that, that's the kind of shift that we, that the book is trying to get some people who are reluctant to make that journey, that's the shift that we're trying to get people to make really, I think Yeah, um, yeah
2: But I, I think as well, like, you know, like so my research is, you know, like I studied webcam on one hand and like sort of street workers on the other, and the laws that have been put in place to protect you know, rabbit ears if people could see me, uh, to protect sort of sex workers, like by by no longer allegedly criminalising them but criminalising their customers actually increases their likelihood of being exposed to violence because actually what you're doing is you're policing, is moral policing. You know, there's nothing, you know, sort of like inherently sort of... Um, you, you know there's there, what you're doing is you you you're policing people's behavior rather than them actually doing somebody any damage you know and your book talks about the typology of crime really sort of well and really convincingly and you know sort of yeah bearing in mind that this is a book that's aimed at first year undergrads it's a really really important book and i would recommend that anyone listening to this orders it for their university but um so how how do you see the future of
0: semiology well when we were putting it together Steve I think what we wanted or were aiming for was an understanding of the development in sort of the first say third of the book or so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and really what we'd like that to be the book itself to be a springboard for moving forward um we see well I can't speak for you Steve but hopefully you agree um semiology as a means of just breaking away from Repetitive discussions. I mean, we even found, and we had this back and forth when we were writing the book. I was like, why are we still talking about, like, a, you know, petulant kid nearly like, why am I still, why are we still talking about criminology? Why are we still talking about these people who've talked about social harm for so many years? Actually, that needs to be said and done. So the second two thirds of the book can be the springboard where then people move that forward mm-hmm. and especially move it forward, hopefully, with the objectives of making these like everyday changes, but also structural changes that don't disconnect and individualize, but pull this stuff together through research, campaigning, um, activism, uh, collegiality, uh, you know, as I think toward the end of the book, we say, you know, all of this won't be done by semiology; it'll be done across movements. But hopefully, you know, semiology will play a part in, in making those movements more or less inhibited by confined disciplinary ways of looking at things and more open and subject to thinking about multi-dimensional um, ways of seeing uh, harms and not just harms to see harms. One of the, the limitations that there could be on semiology is if we just talk about the harms over and over again, rather than the solutions that come from people around us all the time. When you speak to people seeking, you know, who are seeking asylum or whatever, people have great ideas. It will be great for semiology to move forward with those ideas to say, actually, that recommendation for this, that's not enough. You need to make these changes. This institution needs to make these changes. And the harms that you're embedding that are made at decision level can be made otherwise. Decisions can always be made otherwise. Everything that has been built has been built through processes, so it can be deconstructed and rebuilt somewhere else, and hopefully, semiology is where we rebuild that somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, agreed with that. I mean, I think you know, most more briefly, I think I think it can. I think the f- semiology should be about breaking breaking down barriers. So, I mean, there are three, which Vicky's alluded to. I mean, one breaking down barriers between so-called academics and activists or campaigners. I mean, I. I just breaking those those down, right? You, <laughs> it's perfectly possible to be all of those things at the same time, right? Um, of course it is, um, and it, that not just possible, but it should it should be that it should be valorized to to be all of those things. Um, the second breaking down is around discipline. So you know, there's so much to learn from anthropology, from geography, mm-hmm. from gender studies, f- from studies of masculinity. I mean, there's just some sort of from social policy, from political economy. You know. Criminology doesn't have or or sociology doesn't have the only way of looking at the world. We need to be we need to be cross and multidisciplinary. And the third thing in terms of breaking down barriers is we, you know, we need to break down a kind of limits about what is possible. So, you know, we can we can have minor changes which will make some people's situations better. But we can also think about, you know designing a better world right I mean none of us has the answer to that but but we can you know it doesn't have to be some other form of neoliberalism I mean, in fact it doesn't even have to be some other form of capitalism um, you know we can think about uh, different and better forms of society and so breaking down the kind of limits on our imagina- on our imagination I think is, is, is also something which I hope zemiology can, can, can further
2: yeah I mean just quickly can you give us the background how did zemiology come into being?
1: Uh, it, it it came into being uh, well Zemia is a Greek word for harm uh, a, a bunch of us were in Greece uh, we were talking about the problems with crime and criminology um, and thinking about what what we could build an alternative discipline or perspective around um, we were some of us were some of us were defined as criminologists at that point other, other others others of us weren't. But what united us all kind of empirically and theoretically and politically was a concern with different forms of harm which were generated through society, social harms. So it's really that's really how it came about. And we just started playing around with this idea of social harm as the concept at the heart of zemiology, the study of harms. Uh, and it has kind of over the 20, 25 years, I think um, it has kind of blossomed in in. Various various different disciplines, as Vicky as Vicky mentioned earlier on. So it's and including in criminology, but, but you know, but it needs to be it needs to be shifted away from criminology. It just it needs to be shifted away from simply anthropology or simply uh, geography, for example.
0: I think as well, just to say on that, like at the at the start of the book, we've got a preface um, by our you know friends and colleague uh, Patty Hilliard, and Patty was also involved about you know developing that discussion. Well, what is what is harm and Greek? and and pulling that off I mean I wasn't there in Greece I think I was still listening to the Spice Girls and in secondary school Steve I'm afraid so (laughs) I definitely wasn't there um but where we have also wanted to see it move is, is beyond that discussion from sort of closed groups into being much more open and the one thing that I'm pretty chuffed with this year after after a pretty tough year during uh you know the pandemic and everything is that it really seems that people are starting to get exactly what is meant by zeniology. And I'm really happy as well that Paddy, you know, was able to take the time and put that into context from the start mm-hmm. and embed that as we move through so that there's no kind of confusion about what we're all saying over the last debates we've had for the last decade. Um, that's all there fundamentally from the start. So whatever we say from the, you know, as chapter one onward, um, whatever, you know, whatever the historic discussions are, you've got that fundamental platform that Paddy begins with. Who was so you know inherent to those early discussions, and I think I that you know I'm really happy about that with the book as well, which is great, and it's cracking just to say the last thing to hear people who are like somebody was you know saying that their you know their kids have been reading it. My uh, my nieces and nephews were less into it, <laughs> but uh, they're only eight and nine to be fair. But you know to see that that it is. That it actually has been accessibly written because we could have written another academic book that was going to be highbrow and a you know a big word salad for everybody to go toward a ref you know thing or whatever. What we wanted to do and what hopefully we have done is use examples so we can draw like things and people can go oh yeah actually that reminds me of this or that reminds me of that and people can take it also where they want to go in a, in an accessible short fairly shortish way. Yeah. hopefully and that was important that's not it's not accidental it's not we didn't have anything more to say it was what can we do and then how can people move it forward so it's been great to hear from people who are starting out really getting it and not being confused by this conversation and that is uh, it's been a pretty good
2: I've come so far. Yeah, I think it's really important to see like people, for people to start looking at things, not in terms of how it is in, impacts the state, but how it impacts everyone. As soon as we start to look, like sort of see how behavior impacts everyone, then you open up the field and what becomes really apparent is how the same people are being harmed by the same people. And it's very seldom the same for the people that live next door that are doing the biggest, the biggest damage. You know, and I think it's really important that we, you know, that we open up that conversation. You know, I've really, i you know, as a sort of somebody who started studying criminology, and I'm not going to identify as a criminologist, you yeah, know, I'm a semiologist, but I can remember, like, and I come from an Irish traveling of, uh, background. I've got multiple convictions for prostitution and I'm a recovered addict. And it was so comforting to come into academia. And the only reason I went into academia is because it was kind of safe. Yeah. Was to recognise that people were talking about the type of stuff that I knew. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I wasn't feeling criminology. I got. I I studied criminology because I got given an unconditional place to do it. So I took it. It was free. Yeah. yeah. But zemiology made sense to me. Yeah, zemiology made sense to me because of the social harms that I've seen done to the communities that I belong to. Yeah. You yeah. know, quite often by oh. the people who purport to be defending or looking after or protecting so just one last question
0: so pretty what much makes got... my day by the way
2: oh, oh. <laughs> can i tell you something can i tell you something my daughter applied for uh, to do a master's in social work and used a big chunk of your book to help her apply oh, Brilliant! that's okay. great fantastic see she got <laughs> she got offered the place so thank you she's grateful <laughs> uh,
0: so what have you got planned next what's in the next <laughs> Well, uh, plan next. I'm actually about tomorrow, I'm about to be on a sabbatical to finish a book I'm writing called Torture and Torturous Violence, okay. which is um, about thinking more about lived experience of, of violence that I think amounts to torture, um, um, but that isn't ever recognized as torture because of the limitations in law. Yeah. So I'm going to spend the next month doing that and uh, working with psychotraumatologists to Think about toolkits about supporting people to talk about sexual torture and yes. um, it's a little bit different from semiology. but actually it really it is actually sort of a semiological study of torture th- th- taking the same kind of research epistemologies and then uh, i've got other ideas hopefully with state watch um about uh, contracting in in afghanistan and iraq during the invasions and occupation but that's a little bit further down the line steve what are you doing
1: <laughs> um yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to take a break from writing for a bit. I've just literally finished. Just <coughs> excuse me. Just, this morning was was doing a last edit on a on a paper with a, a friend and colleague of mine, Joe Sim. We've just written something about how the British government, the UK government's uh, 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 the Westminster government, has narrated the coronavirus crisis. Mm. Um, the way in which it's it's yeah, the way in which he's narrated it. No, the use of state talk would kind of go back to. Uh, use this concept of state talk and state, state silence partly through the work of Thomas Matisse and, uh, who Vicky referred to earlier uh, past a few days ago and also uh, two sociologists Corrigan and Sayer uh, in terms of how stat- the state narrates its own, its own actions and failings. So we've, we've done that and that's the end of that I think um, and I'm going to have a break from writing but I'm going to carry on I've been speaking about uh, the harms produced by the fire at Grenfell for the last nearly four years now. It'll be four years and two weeks' time. The 14th mm. of June will be the four-year anniversary of that fire. Uh, I'm going to carry on talking about that uh, because I was asked to. So um, mm. uh, I'm just going to keep telling the story, really, of, yes. of, of, of the unfolding kind of harms uh, that are being rigged down on, on, on the survivors and the affected community.
2: And how that's silenced.
1: Yeah. And, and, and how it's silenced yeah totally yeah bless like Stormzy because he keeps bumping it up doesn't he? no no no, no. Stormzy, Stormzy's not silenced about it no that's, you're right about it
2: <laughs> <laughs> so this is the opportunity when you get to shamelessly plug your book which is awesome I recommend it. it's everywhere
0: so tell me who you are and who what the book is so people can go and buy it well I'm Vicky Canning and uh, I'm the co-author of From Social Harm to Zemiology
1: yeah, I'm Steve Toombs, and the book is, from Social Anthropology: a critical introduction. Um, and it's, uh, it's slightly overpriced, but it is in paperback.
0: Yeah, go for the paperback version. It's also got the front cover, which probably, in the end, took nearly as much time as the writing from mine and Steve's back and forth. Because yeah, yeah. if I am anything, I am uh, a little bit obsessive about that. So go for the paperback, because the aesthetics mean uh reflect a lot more actually people have thought that it's like the front cover is um something smashing it was like it's it's supposed to be in my mind semiology smashing the legacies of uh <laughs> restrictive approaches to harms and crimes um but that was it, in my head <laughs> it's a long brosso. anyway <laughs>
2: um thank you both so much and steve
1: did you you didn't get to say who you were Oh I did. Oh, I think I did. I think I said I'm, I'm, the thing I said I'm Steve Toombs. I'm the co-author with Vicky Canning of, of <laughs> so From Social Endysemiology, a critical introduction.
0: After this year, we've all forgotten who we are all together. That's so right. Now. Yeah. <laughs>